Good morning. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Our scripture passage today is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Spend a moment in prayer, Father, as, as we come to your word. Father, help us to understand things that we've not previously understood. Help us to believe the things you would have us to understand. And Father, help us to love such things. Father, I ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, here we come. In chapter 11, to the story of Noah, I'm going to assume that majority, if not all of you, understand, at least to some measure, the story of Noah and his arky arky. So I'm not going to retell the story of Noah and his arky arky. But here's the bottom line of that story. I have to pause for a second. Um, Corbin thought that was funny. I, I love it. He was smiling and laughing. <laughs> here's the bottom line of that story for today. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I think that is a crucial point in the story of Noah as it relates to Noah in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. Now look at the language of Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Do not miss this. It says, The wickedness of man was great every intention of his heart was only evil, and it was only evil continually. So the author, Moses here, of, of Genesis goes to great lengths to show us the extent of the evilness of, the, of men and women at the time of Noah. So I want you to get that picture the current against the faith and actions of Moses is strongly in the opposite direction. So you cannot miss the context of which we're talking about Noah. It almost seems as though the author of Genesis 6 is describing the liberals in America. The context almost demands addressing the letter mafia, and their flag. Every intention of the thoughts of our hearts is only evil continually, and we wave a flag saying we're proud of it. The pride flag, if you will, is like double middle fingers to God Almighty. Now certainly, the letter mafia isn't the only group displaying great wickedness, there are many others, too many 
to name. It's just this group is an easy target, you know, because of the whole rainbow and Noah and his arky arky. Our world is full of wickedness. Much like it was, if not precisely like it was, in the days of Noah. Wickedness, evil, continually. And here's the point. The story of Noah is brought on because of how great the sin of humanity had become. And now, because of God's holiness, he's going to judge all of them. Noah included. The whole earth is going to be judged. And it's in this context that comes a man named Noah. Now, it's funny, when we think of Noah and the story of Noah, what often gets highlighted? A big old boat, a big old flood, and a big old group of animals, right? But what does the Bible highlight about this story? Noah's faith. Noah's faith is what the author of Hebrews here highlights from the story of Noah and his ark. A man who did work proceeding from faith. A man who in the midst of the wickedness of man, every intention, only evil, continually... A man in that context who heard God's word and then acted on it for over 120 years. And many of us have a hard time acting on faith for more than 10 minutes in the midst of people who like us. But Noah does quite the contrary. The first thing I want you to see is that Noah had a faith that stood out, that was unique, that was different that made him stand out from the rest of the world. Now again, you've got to keep Genesis 6-5 in the back of your mind. You've got to, if you've ever looked at like a, a black, like the color black, a curtain that's black, and then someone steps in with a blacker black, right? A darker uh, shade of black. You realize, ah, oh, the black I've been looking at is is not really that black. This is more black over here. You've got to understand the contrast. That's why the author of Hebrews goes through so many adjectives and descriptives to help us understand the judgment upon, uh, that God comes upon, or the evil that God's judgment comes upon, and the context in which the saving faith of Noah is placed. So keep Genesis 6-5 in the back of your mind. Hebrews eleven seven, the first just the first phrase there. By faith, Noah. By faith, everything that is said then of Noah, by faith he does it. So let's just break this down just very simply here. First of all, God spoke. In order for Noah to have faith in God, then God would have to speak. Because, again, what, faith has two sides of that coin. There's, there's the, uh, the conduit of faith, the believing, the grabbing a hold of, the grasping, the standing upon, and then there's the content of which the faith is standing upon, or the content, the truth that it's grasping. 
So for Noah to exercise saving faith, then God had to speak something for which Noah to stand upon, something for Noah to grasp. So what was that? Well, as we think about God speaking or God spoke to Noah, first of all, we've got to understand that he speaks to Noah 120 years before the flood. That's no short amount of time. The world was wicked, though. Think about this. The world was always continually evil, every intention of the heart. Judgment's going to come, tick, 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 120 years. Now think about that. Now consider two, two thoughts here with me, kind of side points, if you will, of this 120 years. I just want to, first of all, recognize God's patience in giving the wicked 120 years to repent. So this great judgment coming upon the earth, he gives them 120 years. And, and we're gonna, I'm going to talk more about this in a minute. But what you have with Noah and his ark is God's word and God's saving grace is on display as the ark is being built and they reject it for 120 years. Probably shaking their fists and raising their rainbow flags all the way up until the end. 120 years. God was patient. Also notice God's, just again a side note, implication here for us, God's slow but steady moving train. God's slow but sure and steady moving train. There is nothing that stops this locomotive. His march toward judgment and salvation is sure and steady, even when it takes longer than any of ours lifetime. Those are my side notes just on the 120-year point. Now, what happened? Oh, again, what is God speaking? God speaks of two like, primary things here. He speaks of a boat that had never existed. And remember the context. He's not even near an ocean. So he tells Noah to build, a, build this boat that nothing of its size has ever been created, and he's not even near an ocean. Then God speaks of a rain that had never existed, that had never happened so just, just understand, he's telling Noah to do two insane things that would have been like, what in the world? And here's the thing we need to realize. Noah had absolutely nothing to go on other than God's words. Nothing. That's it. No other proof, no other examples, no warm fuzzies, no Google reviews, no science, no social acceptability. He had nothing to go on except God said, go do this. That's it. God spoke. That's that side of the coin. The other side of the coin is Noah believed. Noah believed him. Noah trusted him. God said it, that settled it, end of discussion. Again, he believed two things. Let's not just wash right over this. He believed that there would be a great flood of which nothing of its kind had ever happened. And he believed that God had promised salvation for him and his household 
through the building of this boat of which there had never been anything like it before. I mean, I don't know about you, and I, or you, but I would be sitting there like, all right, I'm going to build this thing. It's, it's going to look apart, kind of like an apartment complex, and it's going to float on water I've never seen in a rain that's never happened. For 120 years, I'm going to work on this. That's insane. But for Noah, God said it, he did it, and that settles it. He has faith, like, here's the picture, faith in the unseen, and faith in the future hope of God's saving grace through that boat of which he had never seen. Spurgeon said this, men do not prepare an ark to escape from a flood unless they believe that there will be a flood. Let me ask you a question in light of that. Do you believe judgment is coming? And are you building an ark? More on that in a bit. I think our problem is often when it comes to this, like, believing is that I think often we care more about how we feel concerning what God has said than the fact that he has said it. Thomas Sowell said this, the problem isn't that Johnny can't read, the problem isn't even that Johnny can't think, the problem is that Johnny doesn't know what thinking is, he confuses it with feeling. But God said it. Noah believed it. And that settled it. I mean, look how simple this is. I, I, really, we, we tend to make very complex the Christian life. But it's really this simple. And if it's any harder than this, it's your fault and my fault. It's really this simple. God gave all his instructions these super duper crazy instructions. Build this ark, gather these animals, I'm gonna judge the world, get in the ark, and I'll save you and your family. And then we read in Genesis 6, verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Go back and read Genesis 6. God gives him the instructions, and here we see Noah did it. God said it, Noah did it, period, end of story. It's that simple. So let me ask you this question, how does that go for you? How does this go for me? God said it, Noah felt it, then Noah did it. God said it, Noah saw evidence, then Noah did it. Or maybe Noah did half of it. God said it, Noah contemplated, then Noah did it. God said it, Noah took a nap, then Noah did it. God said it, Noah looked around to see if anyone else was watching, and then Noah did it, or Noah didn't do it. I mean, that's how it plays out for you and I. But for Noah, Noah took God at his word, and then Noah did the word. He took God at his word, and then Noah did it. It's really that simple. Because of this, Noah stood out. 
So much so, he was the only, him and his family, the only ones that got saved. He stood out that much. One is not like the other. <laughs> Literally, one is not like the other. Noah alone trusted in the Lord. He was like a fish out of water. Noah was on an island before there was even a flood. In fact, Noah was on the only island, a floating one, when the water covered the earth. I'm sure Noah would have had plenty negative writings about him, would have been labeled a cult leader or a lunatic, a madman, judgmental, a bigot, or would have had clubs of people rubbing each other's backs as they mocked him. It would have cost Noah his reputation. They would have scorned him day and night, and still he would preach to them repentance and faith over and over and over again. Spurgeon said this, I cannot reproduce the letters that were written about the sturdy patriarch, nor can I recount the spiteful things that were said by the gossips. But I have no doubt they were very clever and very sarcastic. Those productions of genius are all forgotten now, but Noah is remembered still. Noah would have obeyed no matter the cost. Listen, don't forget this. I mean, the way the felt boards go... God told Noah, and then the next day there's an ark. But he built the ark over the next 120 years. He didn't need faith to persevere a day, or faith to persevere three days, or a year, or 10 years, or the average American lifespan of 77.28 years. But 120 years, Noah worked proceeding by faith. Every nail, think about it, every swing of the hammer, every chopping of the tree, every laying the boards together, every carrying of those logs, was you're only doing that if you believe what God has said. For 120 years, and we have a hard time with 10 minutes. He swing after swing. I believe God. I believe God. I believe God. I believe God. Every scorn that came his way. I believe God. I believe God. Every crossword, every dollar he spent, every moment of time it cost him. I believe God. This patriarch was content to sink all his capital and all his income in this crazy venture and only because of God's words. Let me have a, ask you a question. Do you have a faith that stands out like that? Do you have a faith that stands out like that? Now, let me, again, be, because the, uh, the, the, even the Christian culture around us just so terribly defines faith, what I don't mean is the faith to step out and do something stupid. What I mean 
is the faith to do the clear words of God. Spurgeon, again, says this, It is a great thing to have faith in the presence of a terrible trial. But the first essential is to have faith for ordinary, everyday consumption. I love it that Spurgeon here agrees with me on something I say quite frequently, and that is, what about the mundane moments? I don't want to hear about the big events. I don't want to hear, like, what about tomorrow when you're looking across the bed at your spouse and you've got to say some hard words? What about then? What about the moment you've got to parent your child? What does faith look like there? Or the hours you're going to put into studying for a test? What's your faith look like there? Spanking your kids, what's it look like? Trusting your elders. I forgot I had a list on my notes here. Trusting your elders. What's your faith look like when it comes to loving your wife or respecting your husband? I already said disciplining your kids and gave an example. How about chopping down the idols of our day? What about laying an ax to its roots? What about cutting off its funding? What about standing up to a rebellious spouse? What about leading like a man and not like some pansy with low T sitting behind a keyboard? Or kids, how about the faith to trust the Lord when it comes to obeying your parents? Here's the scary thing, I think, for us as Christians. As clear, overt paganism increases around us, it should get easier for us to stand out. You know, you should look more like a sore thumb. Yet, the scary thing is that some of us seem to increasingly just blend in. If you don't ever get asked by pagans why you're doing what you are doing, are you actually doing anything any different than them? On the flip side, those of you who do stand out, expect the derision. Expect to be mocked. Jesus says this, right? Rejoice when you are mocked. For righteousness' sake, for my name's sake, rejoice. To to put it in the words of, of Wilson, he says, go around the corner and dance a little jig. Go celebrate. I hope Noah, when they mocked him, went around and enjoyed some good, you know, grape juice. Noah had a faith that stood out. It was different. And what I'm part of what I'm telling you is it's not hard to do that. Noah had a faith that stood out. Now, if you haven't noticed something going on here, or if you're feeling some kind of tension, let me name something here for you. Hebrews says, by faith, right? 11.7, by faith, Noah. Genesis shows us what that faith looked like, Okay? That's the picture. 
God said it. Noah did it. Today, though, I think we short-circuit by pouring cold water all over the computer. We're like, hang on a second. All that matters is my faith in Jesus and his works, right? All that matters is he did everything right, right? Like, that's what matters, that's it. But in this picture, we have by faith, Noah, and then we have these descriptions, and we have Genesis walking out the story. So there's, there's not just God said it, Noah believed it, but God said it, Noah believed it, Noah does it. So how do we, how do we think about, all right, but there's faith, there's faith in Jesus and his works, but yet Noah does works, like how do these things go together? My second point is faith and works always, always, always go together. That's redundant on purpose, not a typo. Always, always, always go together. Back to 11.7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. Right, that was point one. Being warned of God concerning events as yet unseen. In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. So God says it. God says the unseen. Noah believes it. Then Noah walks faithfully. So we fuss because we don't know how to fit faith and works together. This is a, an age-old issue, but we, we get unsettled. And what happens is this. Anytime someone pays attention to the details of God's word, they get labeled a legalist. Anytime someone gives any attention to given to calling people to obey it, it gets you labeled something like a fundamentalist. I was called that recently, just FYI. But James 2, verse 18 says this, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And he says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. John Calvin said this, we are saved by faith alone, yes, but the faith that saves is never alone. We're saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. He goes on, true and saving faith is always accompanied by obedience, which flows from faith like water from a fountain. The key is not confusing which is the fountain and which is the water. The fountain is, is the faith, and then the works flow from the fountain. But in this passage, in verse 11, it says, in reverent fear. What's that mean? So out of reverent regard, or moved with pious care, or taking heed with careful attentiveness. Right? I mean, the best picture we probably have in recent history is the Puritans, who were given the name Puritan as, as a mocking term. And they were given that term because they paid careful attention 
to the details of what God had said. They gave attentiveness. They removed with pious care. So to put it in more simple terms, Noah had paid attention to the details of what God had said. Why? It was a matter of life and death. God had told him, I will save you this way and this way alone. And for 120 years, Noah believed him. And then what happened? God saved him. So, some application. How many of us pay attention to the details of what God has said? As if it's a matter of life and death. What if every detail that God had said was a matter of life and death? That's the posture I take when it comes to God's word. Every detail is a matter of life and death. But here's what you need to point out, or I need to point out to you, is that reverent fear leads to attentiveness. In reverent fear, he listens to what God has said, and he does what God told him to do. Now, as we think about faith and works, don't confuse this with doing these works to save you. That's just stupid. But listen to this preacher. He said this, Then, as today, people think such reverent attentiveness to be narrow religion. They wrongly equate it with the attitude of the Pharisees who made life difficult, not with their biblical obedience, but with their man-made restrictions. So that's... The Pharisees were legalistic because they had written rules in addition to God's rules and called the people to their rules. They were disregarding God's rules. So don't confuse the two. But instead, faith is the means by which the promises are applied and enjoyed. And that's why I'm going to spend a few moments here. If you're taking notes, that's a good phrase to put down. Faith is the means by which the promises are applied and enjoyed. Remember, faith is like a conduit. You and I, we, we, there's nothing saving inside of that conduit unless God sends his saving grace. That saving is not anything of ourselves. Faith is a conduit. It's like a pipe. So, let me, again, let me flesh this out for us. We tend to think, I think modern evangelicals tend to think, that God's promises are fully secured because I have Christ's righteousness. Now, you've got to follow me here. I'm going to nuance this, but for a good reason. Yes, God's promise, like our eternal redemption with Christ, uh, with the Father, is secured by the righteousness of Jesus. That promise is ours. Think of a, I'm going to give you like a, a metaphor here or a, a thing. Think of Christ's righteousness as being delivered to your porch in a package from the Amazon man. 
because everything comes from Amazon, you know, except righteousness, but, but we'll, we'll go with it for the moment. So you have this box. It's on your property. It's in your house. All of Christ's righteousness, it's yours. It's given to you. It's imputed to you. You are saved, justified, eternally secure. You are God's. He is yours forever. The package is yours. All of it in that box. You bring it into the house, and you begin to pull parts of it out. And you begin to enjoy the promises of God associated with that righteousness. For example, you believe what God has said concerning a wife respecting her husband or a husband loving uh, his wife, and you pull out that righteousness and you live it. And so you enjoy the promise of a beautiful marriage. However, the righteousness of faithful parenting, you leave that one in the box. You don't actually live it. You say you have faith in it, but you keep leaving it in the box, doing nothing with it. You should have absolutely no expectation of receiving that promise. The promises that God makes concerning parenting and your kids, that's not the way it works. You have to take it out of the box. You have to live it. That's what happens with Noah here. Noah's taking what God has said and this righteous way of living, he's taking it out of the box and he's living it. Listen, God said it. Noah did it in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Do you see that? Noah did it. He pulled it out of the box and lived it. And what happened? It says he and his household was saved. It was saved. And attentiveness to God's details will not stifle you as a Christian, but will grow you. There's this sense in modern evangelicalism that if, if we just keep faith simple, love God, love your neighbor, that, that I can be marked safe from legalism. Yet one preacher said this, yet biblical obedience does not fetter you or make you narrow. Rather, it liberates you to what is good and true and wholesome. This is why James speaks of, from James 1.25, the law of liberty, the law of freedom. Studying and following through on God's words will not shrink you, but make you grow. That's what it means. You've got to pull them out of the box. And when you pull them out of the box, that's your faith being shown in works, and that's when you get to enjoy what God has promised. And what's the difference between this and legalism? Ultimately, it's this. It's Christ's righteousness that you're pulling out of that box. It's not a righteousness that you earned yourself. And we'll get to more of that in a bit. But it's Christ's righteousness. What is ultimately going to save Noah? Is it his building the ark? Who told him to build that ark? Who gave him the idea? Who shut the door behind him? Who kept him safe? Who gave him the, the faith to believe it in the first place? 
Who, who, who kept his perseverance for 120 years? Who, who, again, whose righteousness does he keep pulling out of the box? God's. Christ's. That, that Amazon box doesn't have any of your righteousness in it. It's all Jesus's. That means when, practically, it means when, all right, so when you exercise Christ's righteousness in your marriage, who should you give thanks to? A pat on your own back? Or to God? Right? Amen. Should you be encouraged that you walked out fit? Yeah, absolutely. But whose righteousness was it? It was Christ's. Again, more on that in a bit. What we have with Noah is a great example of work proceeding from faith. Why did Noah build the ark? Faith. What caused his work? Faith. Every swing of the hammer. Faith. Noah built the ark only because he truly believed that what God said about the flood was true, that the flood was going to come, and that unless he built the ark, he would be drowned with everyone else. But he knew if he built that ark, that he would one day get in it. And when the rains came, he would be safe inside. The reality is, just like Noah, we always act according to our beliefs. Always. If you say you believe one thing, but you do something else, it means you believe the thing which led to your action. Our actions betray us all the time. They show us, and once they betray us, they, they, uh, the thing that we want to say that we believe, our actions betray that, but our actions are also, it's a, it's a gift that our life works that way, so that our true faith or what we truly trust in or truly believe is revealed with our actions. Some examples, show me someone who beats themselves up when they sin, and I will show you someone who is struggling to believe in Christ's all-sufficient atoning death. Show me someone who isn't in intense discipleship, and I'll show you someone who doesn't believe a chapter like Hebrews 3. Show me someone who doesn't tithe, and I'll show you someone who doesn't trust God with their money. Or show me someone who is sympathetic with the letter mafia, and I'll show you someone who doesn't believe the holiness of God. Someone else said, if faith has any reality in us at all, it works. If it has no effect, it has no existence. Now look at this passage. And we're going to keep pressing here. I love how it describes for us what this faith and works looks like in relationship to the world. This, this passage gives us another, another layer beyond just you and yourself and Jesus. As Christians, many of us have grown up in a culture that says something like, you know, Christians just keep to themselves. Christians just get along with everyone. Don't be mean. You know, certainly don't make anyone around you feel bad. That would be like the devil, right? Don't do any of that. 
But look at this verse, chapter 7. I'm sorry, 11, verse 7. By faith, so and so forth, in reverent fear, so and so forth, saved his household. By this, he condemned the world. By this, Noah condemned the world. True faith will condemn the world. Therefore, you should be ready. True faith will condemn the world. Be ready. To put it in other words, work proceeding from faith will condemn those around you. Now here's here's the beautiful gospel picture at this moment. Noah, follow me here, okay? Noah believed that salvation would come only through trusting God, which in this case looked like building the ark and leading his family to get in the ark, okay, for 120 years. Noah believed that God would save them through that means. The rest of the world believed that salvation could happen apart from God, which in this case looked like rejecting the ark and staying out of the ark. That's the picture. Faith was played out in either building the ark and getting in it or rejecting the ark and staying out of it. We'll be safe either this way or this way. Noah chose God's way. The rest of the world chose their way. Now listen, don't limit faith just to the moment they got in the boat. That, that, that's back to Hebrews eleven seven. It doesn't say that in reverent fear Noah got on the boat. That's implied. But in reverent fear he constructed an ark. You know, in reverent fear he lived by faith for hundred and twenty years. But we tend to think of faith as just the moment we get in the boat, just the moment we got saved. But this is his entire life, his perseverance in faith. So don't limit faith to just the moment. Don't limit faith to just belief in the cross. As important and as much of an apex and vital it is. But Noah's faith in God's saving grace led to 120 years of righteous obedience. Our faith in God's saving grace will lead to a lifetime of taking Christ's righteousness out of the box and living it one piece at a time. One piece at a time. And when that happens, all that to say this, the world around us will be condemned. Noah condemned the world in three ways. Three ways. There's three ways for this, and I want to expand on them just briefly. Through his witness, through his faith, and through his salvation. Noah condemned the world through his witness, through his faith, and through his salvation. Let me explain those. Through his witness. 2 Peter 2.5 says this. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah... 
And Peter calls him a herald of righteousness. A herald. What was it? A proclaimer of righteousness. When Noah was asked about his crazy endeavor. So, so here's, here's the point. Here's what we got to understand. Second Peter 2.5 is telling us that Noah didn't just swing a hammer and build a boat and kept everything to himself. What Second Peter is telling us is that while Noah built the ark, sw- hammer swing after hammer swing, was a proclaimer of righteousness. I imagine it went something like this. The people said to Noah, hey, what are you doing? Noah says, I'm building a boat. They say something like a boat. That looks more like an apartment complex. Why are you building that? He said, because God is going to flood the earth. I imagine they say something like, but why is he going to do that? And in light of 2 Peter, Noah answers them, because you're a pagan. They say, what's a pagan? Noah says, someone who's wicked Every intention, only evil, continually. I imagine they say something like, me, no way. I'm just being true to myself. Noah says, such would I be apart from the grace of God. Get in the boat and you'll be saved. Stay out and you'll face God's judgment. Then Noah, I'm sure, has to hold up a shield to block the stones at this moment. Not unlike someone later, known by the name of Nehemiah. I mean, I mean, listen, I mean, think about this. How how do you how does Noah say this any more winsomely? How does he say it any more lovingly? And not lose the relationship? I mean, listen, there's a flood coming, God's judgment's coming to kill you all. If you don't trust in his saving grace, you will die. Why do I need saving grace? Because you're evil always continually. Well, you know, if you get in the boat, you'll have a better tomorrow. It'll be your best life now. You know, it'll just be way more enjoyable than being in the water. Swimming with, the, swimming with the dolphins. It'll just be, it'll be better. Just trust me. Just trust me. You will die. Listen, the judgment to come is, is no different in its effect, only different in its style. And that's your neighbor. Who, who doesn't know that they need to get on the boat, doesn't know that they need to start swinging a hammer. The question is, is that how your witness goes usually? Number two, through his faith. The world was condemned through his faith. Here, here's what I mean by that. There it was before their eyes, evidence of God's word. God said, I will save you through this ark. And so what's he do? He starts building the ark. What's happening? God's saving grace 
is being built before their eyes. As you and I live by faith, God's saving grace is being built before people's eyes. And some will run to it begging for mercy, and many will reject it and say, no, I'm good. God's word was being put in flesh for them to see it. That's why Jesus is called the Word. Because He is a living flesh before our eyes testimony of God's words. And that's what Noah's doing. God said it. Noah did it. And that there displays it. And that there condemned the world. So let me ask you this question. Is your household evidence of God's word? Is your finances evidence of God's word? Your friendships evidence of God's word? Parenting, is your church covenantal outworking evidence of God's word? If it is, this will condemn the world. Why? Because it shows their lack of faith in God's word. Number three, through his salvation. Through his salvation. It condemned the world through his salvation because it proved that anyone could have been saved. All they needed to do was get on the boat even if it would have been at the last minute, like the thief on the cross, all they had to do was say, that's the way of salvation, not my way. That's all they had to do. And they had 120 years to change their minds. You see, those condemned by Moses certainly would have condemned him back. Someone said this, with some pointed remarks. Listen to these words. No doubt there were plenty of witty and wise things said about Noah. And then one morning, the rain, be, the rain began and continued, and for 40 days it did not stop. And they began to think that perhaps, after all, there was some method in his madness. Noah got into his ark and still it rained. I wonder what they thought about it all then, when the water, with the water up to their knees. How their jests would die in their throats when it reached their lips. Listen, the mockers can mock, the trolls can write, the Christians can take, quote unquote, Christians can take their jabs. The sad-for-nothing churches that house them can all enjoy their success right now. One day, the water, metaphorically speaking, will be up to the necks, and I wonder what they will say then. Noah's life condemned the world. Christians, if we live, live out God's faith, or our faith in what God has said, 
it will stand out and it will show them their condemnation. The last thing I want you to see is this. True faith inherits righteousness. True faith inherits righteousness. Hope we can tie a few things together here. So by faith, Noah warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by what? By works? By faith. So simple question, am I saved by obeying God's law? Do we get righteousness as we obey God's law? And will that save us? Simple answer, it's no. That would be a rightful label of legalism. The only righteousness that God accepts is the righteousness that comes to us by faith and by faith alone. It's the same picture here in Noah and his arky arky. Where was the saving coming from? Where did Noah believe the saving was coming from? From his building? From God's instructions? From God's saving plan? That's why I used the Amazon box. By faith, we get the box, it's ours. Signed, sealed, delivered, it's all ours. By faith, we pull out aspects of that righteousness and live it out as we grow in knowing and drawing near to God. That will look a lot like lawful living, right? Jesus, who fulfilled the law, meaning he lived a life perfectly in light of the law. So then as we pull that righteousness out, our faith will look like a lot of lawful living, These works proceed from faith, but they, make no mistake, are Christ's righteousness in us. They are not of our own merit. That's part of the point here at the end of verse 7. The righteousness that was Noah's came by faith by means of an inheritance. He inherited. What, when, when you get an inheritance, what is, what is an inheritance? Did you, did you make all that money? Did you do all that work? Did you? No, it's a gift. It's a gift. It, it's, it's like the author of Hebrews is saying, saying and, and received the gift of righteousness that came by faith and faith alone. The source of the gift was not Noah's own resources, but the one who granted the inheritance. And indeed, that's how Christ's righteousness comes to us, as a gift, as an inheritance to his children. Not everyone is God's children. If they were, they would receive the inheritance of eternal life. But those who are his children receive an inheritance just as Noah did. So by faith, we place our trust in Christ's saving 
ark. We, by God's grace, walk right up to the ramp, and he seals the door behind us. And when his judgment, when God's judgment comes crashing down, the blood of Christ covers us like the ark covered Noah and his family. But it's faith in God's words that puts us in the ark. God said it. Go do it. I'll leave you with this metaphor from Spurgeon. He says it's, it's like a coffin to a new world. He says the ark was, so to speak, a coffin to Noah. He entered it and became a dead man to the old world. Within its enclosure, he was floated into a new world to become the founder and father of a new race. Does that ring a bell? Sounds similar? Jesus went to the cross, became a dead man to the world for three days, where he floated by God's grace into a new world to become the founder and father of a new and final eternal race. God said it. Jesus did it. And so shall we. Let me pray. Father, Father, oh, help our unbelief. Well, you have said all that we need to hear. But, Father, do we need your help to believe? Do we need your help to trust? Do we need your help to not doubt? Our Father, do we need your help to grow in knowing what you've said? To consume it like it is life and death. For it was Jesus who said, I am the bread of life. Or he says to the Samaritan woman, come and drink of me. I'll give you water that you shall never thirst again. Father, all of your words are life and death to us. And you've been gracious and merciful to give us eyes and, and hearts, to give your children the faith to believe it. Father, thank you. Thank you for your great mercy. Thank you most of all for Jesus. Who for his 33 years didn't just persevere under the mockery of pathetic human men and women, but persevered under the weight of your wrath that we deserve. I thank you for persevering him, that he would drink all of your judgment that was due to us, even to the last rain drop. Thank you for bringing him back out of that ark where he would reign and rule for all eternity. I thank you for your great mercy and your patience. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.